Let's open up to Deuteronomy chapter 16. We're going to backtrack just a bit from where we were on Sunday in chapter 17, but we're picking up where we left off, I think, five weeks ago. Something like that. It's all a blur. Elah Hadevarim. It's not a greeting. Hope you remember this. Elah Hadevarim. These are the words. The Jewish title for the book of Deuteronomy, as we've talked about and did several weeks back, Allah HaDevarim. These are the words. They are the words of Moses, preaching the word of God, again, on the plains of Moab, across the Jordan River from Jericho. And tonight, we come to, picking up in verse 18 of chapter 16, what we're coming to is Moses' application of the fifth commandment. Now, remember I told you, throughout the preaching section of Deuteronomy, as we call it, throughout the preaching section, Moses is applying the Ten Commandments. And we can see that application if we stop long enough to, to, to look. And right here, we're, we come to commandment number five, which is repeated in Deuteronomy 5.16, Exodus chapter 20. It's honor your father and your mother. As the Lord your God has commanded you that your days may be prolonged and that it may go well with you on the land which the Lord your God gives you. Now, you're not going to hear about mom and dad in this chapter or in the next, in this section that I do believe is application of that commandment. Honor your father and mother. Listen to this, verse 18. You shall appoint for yourself judges and officers in all your towns which the Lord your God is giving you according to your tribes and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. Moses now gets into justice and the rule of law, the civic rule of law. But the rule of law begins at home. It starts with parents. That is the first place that any of us, for better or for worse, and we're not making judgment now on who was raised well and who was raised poorly, but the reality is in God's economy, by God's standard, mom and dad are the first line of justice. They're the first ones who dole out judgment. I had plenty growing up. But that's where we begin to learn in the household at home Peter goes on and says in 1 Peter 4, 17, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? You see, even before judgment becomes, becomes understood in God's house, and, and truly that I think is important for all of us as Christians to understand, followers of Jesus, we need to judge us before we start judging the world. Now, there is judgment for the world, and we can address that when the Scriptures do and when God does, but that's, other than that, not my place. My place is to judge me and judgment in the household of God, but before that judgment can be understood in the household of God, it's got to be understood through parental authority. Honor your father and your mother. That's where you learn to accept someone who's in authority over you and to accept their decisions. If authority on the home front is healthy, that if it's, if it's the equal balance of, of both love and discipline, well, then communities are better for it. Nations are more secure. Cultures are more structurally sound if the home is good. But where the pillar of the family is broken, lawlessness. See, while everybody's trying to figure out the shootings, in America, the violence on the streets. 
all the things that keep that are vomited up in the press on a daily basis, and people are going, what's the problem? We need more laws for this, or we need more laws for that. And I'm, I'm you know, standing here among a handful of people saying, we need to address sin. <laughs> That's the issue. It's not the handgun, it's the sinful heart that holds the gun. It, it, it's, it's sin in the world, and it's unaddressed sin, and tragically, Satan has gone after all of the pillars of society, every single one. The family, he's gone after it to take it apart. Education, he's gone after it to take it apart. Government, he's gone after it to take it apart. And he's going after the church. Really cheery way to begin a Wednesday night study, isn't it? But it begins with mom and dad. It begins at home and it begins with that structure of authority. Honor your father and your mother. And listen to this, verse 19. He says, you shall not distort justice. Now that is first taught at home. You shall not be partial. You shall not take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and perverts the words of the righteous. Don't do that. Verse 20, justice and only justice. In fact, literally in the Hebrew, justice, justice you shall pursue. He just repeats himself. That you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Did you hear it? Right there. That's the promise of the fifth commandment. Paul relays it in Ephesians 6, verses 2 and 3. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, and the promise is so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth, and that's exactly what Moses just said, that you may live and possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you. There needs to be a sense of authority, an obedience to authority, and a willingness to settle for authoritative justice. And this is not new information, I don't think, for any of you, that humankind needs boundaries. We need fairness. We want impartiality. We want justice and righteousness. Everybody does. Believers, non-believers alike. doesn't matter where someone's at. Everybody wants it to be fair. Even the atheist will cry out, well, that's not fair. To which I would say to the atheist, where'd you get the idea that there was any fairness? Why would you even think something's not fair? if you don't believe in a, in a right and a wrong in, in, in God. Fairness, we, we want that. And we live best when we acknowledge moral absolutes. Now, it's, it's frightening right now because we live in a culture that's saying there are no moral absolutes, a culture that is undermining anything that is a standard of authority, anything that has morally been um, laid down through history. Marriage is a great example of that that this culture is ripping it apart. It was a standard set by God that a man should leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and the two become one flesh. That's God's standard. Our society is all over the map on that one. When those moral absolutes begin to fall, when lawlessness increases, so does confusion and unrighteousness and anger and bitterness and vitriol and everything else. Moses is spot on as he's applying the commands and here says, look, justice, justice, be righteous, be fair, be just, because otherwise, well, this is what you get. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, where the prophet says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light, light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet, And sweet for bitter, 
Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. And the prophet adds in, woe to, those, woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. Like the recent pastor who was arrested in Canada for just wanting to keep his church open. The ones who are in the right losing their rights. Isaiah goes on, therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. And Moses says, justice, justice. Here's the thing. We don't claim to be wise in our own eyes. We claim the word of God. If there's a wise word spoken among us as followers of Jesus, it's because it comes from this book. It, it's become as, because it's a download of his spirit. We claim the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's what we're looking for. It's what we desire. And it really does go to the heart, again, of anybody because everybody wants to be right. And everybody wants righteousness, even if righteousness itself as a word is a little passe in this culture. Everybody wants to have a sense of being right, righteousness. So we agree with Abraham. Remember the story? God actually goes to visit Abraham. And uh, as he's there with, with Abraham, sends a couple of angels on down to check out Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Lord says to himself, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And so he tells him, Sodom and Gomorrah are going to be destroyed because of their wickedness, because of their evil. And Abraham cries out, Genesis 18, 25, far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked. What's he saying? It's not fair. That's not right. He says, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike, far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And so the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous people within that city, I'll spare the whole place on their account. And again, if you know the story, Abraham began to haggle. And he haggled with God all the way down to 10 people. First it was 50, and he said, okay, okay, well, but what if there's only 40, Lord? For 40, I'll spare Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, okay, but, but, but what if there's only 30? Okay, for 30, Abraham, I will settle Sodom and Gomorrah. I, I, I will save them. Yeah, but what if it's just 20, Lord. And he gets all the way down to 10, and God says, even for 10, I'll spare Sodom and Gomorrah. You know how many righteous people were found in Sodom and Gomorrah? One. As Peter calls him, righteous Lot. What about Lot's wife? Well, she was a little salty. <laughs> what about Lot's daughters? Well, that's a completely different story. Welcomed the Moabites and the Ammonites from their line with their dad. Lot was not a perfect man. Lot was a righteous man because he believed in God. And as with Abraham, faith was credited righteousness. That's a whole further teaching, but, but God is righteous. God is fair. God spared the one righteous man, got him out of there. So we agree with Abraham. God's a righteous God. 
We agree with Moses, who, who wrote in Psalm 96, verse 10, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Indeed, the world is firmly established. It will not be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. And you can tell anybody who says, I don't believe in Jesus and God and all that Christian stuff because I don't like the idea of judgment day. Hey, you know what? God is going to be absolutely perfectly fair. No one's going to get ripped off. No one's going to be treated unjustly or unfairly. Every last person in heaven into eternity is going to say, praise God, I was saved by his grace. He is a good and faithful God. And I guarantee this, if you could talk to everybody in hell through all eternity, they would say, yeah, yeah, it was, well, maybe they won't. <laughs> because they won't see it as fair. Because rebellion is, is the issue. But God will be perfectly fair. Moses says so. Abraham says so. Most of all, we agree with Jesus who said in John 5, 26, just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. What does that mean? means because Jesus was not only son of God, he was son of man. Because he walked in flesh like you walk in flesh. Because he understands what we understand. And he showed himself. Now, now God understood us. God knows his creation better than his creation knows itself. But he proved to us that he gets us by becoming like us. And because of that, God gave him the authority to judge. To execute judgment. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Two judgment days, you Bible students know this, but let me cover this quickly in case you missed that night. Two judgment days. One is the great throne judgment. That's coming at the end of the kingdom age. That is coming, that is yet future. And that judgment is for every last person throughout history who wants to be judged based on how good they were. If someone wants to be judged on their goodness, if they want to die saying, I'm a good person and that's all I need, then books will be opened. You can read it in Revelation 20 and that judgment will happen. That's judgment day. That's typically what people think of when they say judgment day. It is coming. His wrath, as we sang, may soon be kindled. But that's one judgment day, the judgment of all those who want to be judged by deeds. There was another judgment day that happened 2,000 years ago at Calvary where Jesus took my judgment on himself, took your judgment on himself on the cross and died. He paid for it. Every last drop of his blood paid for your judgment completely that we would be exonerated. So if that's the case, then how does Paul say that we have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ to be recompensed for our deeds in the body? Is that the, the deeds judgment? No, no, no. When Paul says the judgment seat of Christ, he's talking about that we in the household of God will be judged. Okay, Rick, you're confusing me because you just said there's that judgment day coming and my judgment day was 2,000 years ago, so my judgment's taken care of, right? Yes, and you will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. Not for salvation, because in Jesus you have salvation. In Jesus your salvation is secure. By the way, I'm going over this because I had some people disagree with me on this, and I just want to make it clear. The judgment seat of Christ is about gifts. It is about rewards. 
I don't know why some don't like that. I think that's a great idea. I think I should have more rewards than Deb. I just think I've earned it. <laughs> Sitting back there laughing. I don't know. No, that's not the point. It's not, I want more than you. Or I want. No, there, there is incentive in the, in the Christian walk, in the Christian life. And listen, understand this. When we talk about the judgment seat of Christ, the reason that I absolutely know that that judgment is not of salvation is because we are saved by grace. And the Bible is clear on that. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace, you have been saved through faith. That is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. I am saved by God's grace. But there is also a judgment of deeds for followers of Jesus. And Jesus supports it even further. He says, behold, I'm coming quickly, Revelation 22:12. 12. My reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. So he's going to render, he's going to recompense. There will be gifts, there will be rewards, there is incentive. That's not a bad thing, it's not a weird thing, it's a biblical thing. You're saved by grace, and yet we will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. By the way, and again, you Bible students know this, the judgment seat in 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 5, the judgment seat, that word is bima in the Greek. It's the bima seat. The Bema seat was that in Greece, the platform of the Olympic runners or athletes, and they would step on, up on the platform for what? Medals, rewards, the Bema seat. We will all appear before the Bema seat of Christ, and there will be rewards. Greatest reward of all is heaven. And in Jesus, you have that. By faith in Jesus Christ, you can count on going home when he calls. The judgment then is about rewards above and beyond that. I don't know what it looks like. I mean, the Bible talks about crowns, five different crowns. The Bible talks about jewels in the crown. So, so it, I don't know exactly. But I guarantee when we get there, every one of us are going to be thrilled that we are there. And then when rewards are passed out or medals or, or honors are passed out, we're all just going to go, yeah, awesome. Oh, that's great. Because we're all so happy just to be there anyway. But to be there with a crown of reward is even better. You know why? Because you have something to offer in worship. As the elders cast their crowns before the throne. Man, I have something now more that I can worship with, more that I can give to him, casting the crowns. And I don't know if it's like a little conveyor belt, like when you go bowling and the crown comes back and you cast it again. I don't know. It's going to be something like that. But there are rewards and there are incentives and justice Fairness and righteousness, God wants us to pursue that and to live in that and to know that it thrills Jesus when his people do that. So it's first learned at home. So parents, mothers, fathers, for your kids' sake, love them deeply, discipline them rightly. You have a standard that you can use. Anyone who says there's no manual for parenting. Now, I thought that for the first round of kids. So I'm on my second round trying to figure it out again, and I've discovered, no, there is a, a manual for parenting. It's called the Word of God, and it will make the difference. And for those of you like me who've already gone through a round, and you look at the round, and you go, wow, what I do? Uh, no, and I love my kids. They're great. <laughs> but I think about things that I did and how I mishandled so many things as, as a parent. And, and I have told you this, too. 
In the second round of, of raising kids, now we have Christopher's home and David and, and Naomi, so our younger kids, as we're raising them, I'm not making any of the, any of the mistakes I made the first time. Not a single one. Making all new ones, yeah, I know. But we have the manual, we have the word of God, justice, fairness, righteousness. This is embedded in the rule of law and God still wants this from you. God still desires it of me. Doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, doesn't matter how long you've been on the earth, what God would say to you would say to me tonight and Moses is proclaiming is justice, justice you shall pursue. Be right. Do what's fair. Seek righteousness. He has told you, Micah chapter 6, verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Pretty simple. Well, verse 21, continuing, you shall not plant for yourself an Asherah of any kind of tree beside the altar of the Lord your God, which you shall make for yourself, you shall not set up for yourself a pillar, a sacred pillar. He's talking about an Asherah pole, which the Lord your God hates. You might say, wow, that's kind of a left turn. What does that have to do with the rule of law and justice? Listen, idolatry incites lawlessness, which is why it's placed right here. Idolatry incites, it invites, it encourages, it, 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 it ignites, if you will, lawlessness. God knew this. This is what was going on in Canaan just across the river. This is what had been going on for 400 years in Canaan. Idolatry that produced and encouraged lawlessness. Think about this. False worship does that. It undermines fairness. Because the things required by phony pagan gods inflame sin all the more. The idolatry in Moses' day, sexual ritual. So sexual immorality was encouraged with the temple prostitutes. You go to church and their sexual immorality is part of the worship. What happens the rest of the week? And you go to the, to the idol and you financially pander. Well, that's going to affect how you do business. And you go to the idol and you offer human sacrifice and suddenly life matters nothing. The issue of, of all the violence and death and murder and all that's going on in America right now, it's because our, our belief in the quality and value of life has plummeted in this country. You want to deal with the, the shootings and the violent issues? Why don't we start with a newborn child? Why don't we deal with that? Why don't we start again to seek, and I used to love this, this was uh, George W. Bush, I believe, was the one who kind of coined the phrase, but he talked about a culture of life. We live right now in what, uh, sorry to say, is a culture of death. No wonder people don't care. No wonder violence is constant. Because that's the culture. Life doesn't matter. I'm only here a certain amount of time, and then I'm going out, and my life stinks, so I'm going to take out a bunch of people with me on the way. Because life doesn't matter. And that's idolatry. It causes that. And idolatry is, is becoming thick in this country. And I'm not trying to be Mr. Negative tonight, but we've got to realize these things. Don't be idolatrous. He says it in the middle of justice. And note what he says, because the warning is specific. It's not only don't set up an Asherah pole to the goddess Ashtaroth. Ashtaroth was the mini-breasted goddess, the consort of Baal. 
and, and the whole thing. That's where temple prostitution came from, is they were emulating Ashtaroth and Baal. And so an Asherah pole, that, that's not the only issue here. Don't set up an Asherah pole. It is, note this in verse 21, don't set up an Asherah pole beside the altar of the Lord your God. It's not in addition to, it's next to that, that word beside, etzel in the Hebrew is don't set up a pole next to, along with, or linked to God's altar. Well, who would do that? I told you on Sunday, I saw it all over northern Ghana where you had Christianity, Catholicism, Islam, uh, and the Juju religion all mixed up. People kind of living all of it, figuring it's all the same God, so what does it matter? There's a word for that. We see it in our culture today. It is syncretism. And you've seen the, light, you've seen the bumper sticker for years now, coexist. It's syncretism. The coexist, it sounds great. Oh yeah, let's just, just live and let live and, and everybody can just be one big happy family. We can all coexist together and it's fine. You know what? It doesn't work. It's, it's that whole dull, ill-informed gospel of coexistence, though it is no good news at all. It, it, it produces, when, when you kind of say, hey, it doesn't matter what you believe, what I believe, who we believe, how we believe, whatever, let's just all hang together in this. It's anything goes, spirituality. And the more that syncretism, that mishmash of faith as opposed to a single standard, the more that goes on, the more unruly people become. Why? Because there's no single certainty. There's no standard. You might be right. I might be right. Who's right? Doesn't really matter. Do whatever you want. Syncretism is idolatry. It produces that. And people embrace it, and the more they embrace it, the more lawlessness increases. Christianity and Judaism alone share the same roots of faith. We do draw back right into the Hebrew Scriptures. Islam claims to. The difference is that we draw back to the roots of the Hebrew Scriptures as they are, as God gave them, not as they were twisted and rewritten by Muhammad. So when we talk about Yahweh, Yahweh, God of Israel, is my God. And we have that in common, Christianity and Judaism. Now, with all due respect, the Jewish view today remains limited because it doesn't accept the full expression of God in Jesus. You know, so the Jew who at this point doesn't believe Messiah has come yet has not accepted that Jesus is God, the revelation of God, God with us, God in the flesh. The Bible says in Isaiah 43, 11, I, even I, am the Lord. And there is no Savior besides me. Pretty clear, Right? No Savior besides me. In Isaiah 45, 21, declare, set forth your case, the Lord says. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So God makes it very clear in the Hebrew Scriptures, He is the only Savior. That's it. There is no other Savior but God. And then Jesus comes along 
and we got to deal with this. We got to square ourselves with this because he said in John 3:16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But Jesus didn't stop there. John 3, 17, he said, for God did not send the son into the world to judge the world, but listen, that the world might be saved through him. God says, I'm the savior, there is no other. Jesus says, I came that the world would be saved through me. Sounds like the savior. So again, it's part of that marvelous biblical reality of the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, one God, separate but equal, one God. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6, 4, the Lord, your God, the Lord is one, echad, which is that plurality of oneness. And you shall love the Lord your God. 1 John 5, 20, John said, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Speaking of Jesus. Syncretism. This, this idea, well, you can put an Asherah pole right next to the altar in the temple. No problem, just do that. It's a direct denial that there is one true God. It's a direct denial of the one true God in Christ Jesus. And it is an embrace of, of lawlessness because again, a, a person can follow and do whatever they want. If there are a multiplicity of gods, you got yours, I got mine, they have theirs, great. We'll just do whatever. Just co coexist and it'll be fine. Here again is the problem with coexistence. The Taliban. The Taliban, listen to me, are not a lawless bunch. They are keeping Quran to the T. All they're doing is what their scriptures tell them to do. How do you coexist with that? Any of you, men or women, who are women's rights activists, who would be appalled at what the Taliban are doing, can you coexist with that? Because all they're doing is following the Quran, just doing what their book says. Their book is incompatible with God's word incompatible with the Hebrew scriptures, with the New Testament. It doesn't fit. You can't go side by side. And you could line that up with any of the gods out there, so-called that people worship or follow. Allah, Brahma, Buddha, Gaia, Shakti, Vishnu. There are some names out there just bizarre that Americans worship. These are not all various and sundry names for the same God, the, the same higher power. I've said to you before, in the same way that Baal and Ashtoreth were not representations of God in the land of Canaan. They were pagan idols. They were false gods. In the same way, Allah is not a representation of God in the world today. He's a false god. It's a, a pagan idol. There is no truth there. And so again, the Bible is incompatible with any other view than this. There is one true God and Savior, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory, listen, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good deeds, justice, justice you shall pursue. Go after what is right. Speaking of lawlessness, back in the, in the passage here, syncretism was not only a moral issue, it was also a legal issue. Now, for the people of Israel, it's not about just church stuff. See, we, we separate out church and law and life and government and all that. In Israel, it's all the same thing. By the way, it should be for us too. But they, they didn't separate it out. It was all one thing. And so in chapter 17, picking up there, Moses now gets into how judges and priests were supposed to administer the justice. But, but don't miss the first verse. We've heard this a lot. Deuteronomy 17.1, you shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep which has any blemish or which has a blemish or any defect for that is a detestable thing to the Lord your God. The word blemish is mum, M-U-M. And it is either a, it's a spot or a physical or moral stain. So that's, that's what is meant by blemish. It's some kind of stain that gets in there. And it could be a physical stain on an animal brought for sacrifice, or it could be a moral stain on a follower. The word defect, I think, is interesting here. Any, any sheep that has a, a defect, it's dabar ra. Elaha devarim is, these are the words. Dabar is word. And so the word defect here is literally dabar ra, an evil word. Evil word. Interesting for a sheep. What is he saying? A sheep that has a mum and, a, and an evil word. Mum's the word, I guess. I don't, I don't know how that. <laughs> what he's saying is you don't go out and get your ugliest, smelliest, pockmarked, one-eyed, tailless, toothless, skinniest sheep and say, brought it to you, Lord. Brought this for sacrifice. Moses is reminding them that if it doesn't cost you, it is not sacrifice. Years ago, in fact, God bless this, this gentleman, and I, I won't name him, and, and no, none of you would, would know him anyway, but many, many years ago, we had um, a very generous man on the night that we had decided to buy the land, the next morning called us up and said, I want to buy it and gift it to the church. Very generous. I remember meeting with him uh, prior to this, and we had had a few conversations and a few meetings. It was one of those, it was kind of like the scene in A Wonderful Life. It's A Wonderful Life where George Bailey goes to Potter's office. If you've seen the movie, if you haven't, you need to see the movie. It's a great movie. Watch it this Christmas. But he goes in to talk to Mr. Potter, the richest and most evil man in town. Potter's sitting behind that big ornate desk, and George Bailey comes in and sits down in the chair, and the chair is really low. That's how I felt when I met with this guy. I'm sitting there and I'm looking up and in this big ornate office. And I'm like, I go to church in a barn, man. <laughs> so he's talking to me and I'm, I'm sharing with him. And he said, I, I just want to know how I can best support the church. And I said, well, that's simple, tithe. And he goes, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. You know, in, in essence, and I'm, I'm kind of not saying exactly what he said, but, but if I were to rephrase it, I would say, you can't handle my tithe. And, and truly, and I don't know what he made, but apparently made so much that for him to give 10% of it. Now, I, I tried to convince him. No, we can, we can use it. We'll figure it out, I promise you. 
Praise God, he's protected us from that. But, but he, you know, it was, it was so interesting. He just, he, he, you can't handle my tithe. And, and to be honest, maybe I couldn't, but God can. And what the Lord asks you and me to do, and let's get it away from money for a second. What he asks us to do is to give not the scraggly, but the best. To bring our best to God. And if it doesn't cost you, then it's really not the best. It's, it's not a sacrifice. Well, I gave my offering this morning. Really? Was it the change in your pocket? I mean, thank you. But is that the best you had? Did that cost you? Now I'm back on money again. David, David was in trouble with God over this whole issue of, of sacrifice. and Well, he, had, he actually was in trouble with God because he asked for a census of his military. You may remember the story in 2 Samuel 24. He wanted to take a census to see how powerful he had become. It was a sin. It was a bad idea, but he did it and brought punishment on Israel. And when he realized this, David being David, prayed for forgiveness. Lord, it's my fault. Don't blame Israel. I, I did this. And God sent the prophet Gad to David who told him, you need to go up and build an altar on the threshing floor of a man named Arunah. And, and Arunah, he was a Jebusite who was living there in Jerusalem and had a threshing floor on a high place there on Mount Moriah. And God said, go up there and build an altar. That threshing floor is the Temple Mount today. God said, I want you to go up there. So David goes up and he meets with this Arunah and he says, I, I'd like to purchase your threshing floor so that I can make offerings to the Lord my God. And Arunah wasn't selling he said, no, no, I, I, here, here's the wood and oxen and the land. I, I give it to you. It's that Middle Eastern generosity, you know. And 2 Samuel 24, 23, he says, everything, O king, Arunah gives to the king. And Arunah said, may the Lord your God accept you. However, and I love this, the king, David, said to Arunah, no, I will surely buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God which cost me nothing. It's not really a sacrifice if it doesn't cost. And so David recognized that. It's a beautiful story. So he bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. If you want to know who has ownership rights to the Temple Mount, it's Israel. David bought it. We have the sale of receipt right in the Bible. So it belongs to the Jewish people purchased by King David at that time. And Arunah very happily sold it to him. But the point, again, is the same. If it doesn't cost me, it's not sacrifice. And whether that's finances or involvement or the way I live my life, if it's not a cost, I'm not really sacrificing. I may be giving. I may be generous with my time. I may be friendly. But Paul said in Romans 12, verse 1, I urge you, brethren... By the mercies of God to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. Acceptable to God, your spiritual service of worship. There is a personal cost. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. If you're not a Christian and you're listening tonight, listen, if you give your life to Jesus, there's a cost. Count it. It's going to cost you. You can't buy your way into salvation. You're not going to buy your way into heaven, but if you follow Jesus, don't worry about it, but be ready. There will be a cost, and don't forget the highest price was already paid. Jesus paid the highest cost. Peter said, 1 Peter 1, 18, you were not 
redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers. Now you were bought with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. See, when God says, bring your best, when we talk about the principle, if, if, if it doesn't cost me, it's not sacrifice. Remember the example, God's answer to my sin was to give his absolute best in Jesus. So verse one, don't bring a skanky little sheep. Bring your best. Verse two, Rick's commentary. If there is found in your midst in any of your towns which the Lord your God is giving you, a man or a woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God by transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods or worshiped them or the sun or the moon or any of the heavenly host, which is getting really big in America these days, which I have not commanded. And if it is told you and you have heard of it, then you shall inquire thoroughly. Behold, if it is true, and the certain thing that is detestable, that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out that man or that woman who has done this evil deed to your gates, the man or the woman, and you shall stone them to death. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. That's vital. That's God's justice. Verse 7, and the hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. And we've talked about this recently and several times through Torah and even through Deuteronomy, the idea of capital punishment. And some would read that today and say it's archaic and it's brutal and that's just not the way we do things in America. We don't believe in the death penalty. Yeah, well, there's death on the streets. So what would you prefer? The death of one lawless evil person or the death of many because of that? The death penalty. Let me, let me, because we've talked about it a lot, let me give you a couple of just real quick reminders about the biblical view and understanding of this. First of all, the death penalty is not uh, in the Mosaic law. It is not, well, it is, but it's not limited to the Mosaic law, the, the covenant with Moses. No, it goes all the way back. It's an ancient arrangement, the Noahic covenant. Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, God commanded all humanity a life for a life. If someone takes a life, their life is forfeit. We look at that from a temporal perspective and we say, that's not fair, they lose their life. No, they just go to be dealt with by God. That's the punishment is, yeah, you, you lose life now. Listen, that doesn't mean that they go to hell. From the eternal perspective, it means they go before God. Now, where their heart is and what happens, and there have been people on death row who have been executed that I am convinced we will see in heaven because of grace. Now, I know that freaks some people out. Wait, someone who took another life could actually go to heaven? Yeah, because, yeah, because God sees what we do not see. And God lives on the eternal plane where we think so temporarily. But the point is the death penalty is an ancient arrangement. It is not just God's law for Israel. According to the Noahic covenant, which has never been revoked, it's God's unconditional law for all mankind. God established the death penalty. 
And the death penalty was, secondly, not only an ancient arrangement, but an absolute abolition. That the point was, when something so evil was done in Israel, God said, you abolish it at the source immediately. You don't leave it to let it continue to spread. Because then the death will be multitudes. So you deal with the source of the evil. An absolute abolition. 1 Corinthians 15, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. That's all you need is one bad person to continue to spread the evil. One person who is just living out the sin nature in their heart. So it was an absolute ab abolition. It, it also carried, and note this because it's important with the law, an acute accountability. That is, God said, it's not just death penalty for parking violations. <laughs> God said, there's got to be at least two, if not three, witnesses to the crime. It's not, it's not hearsay, and it's not even one person. So it can't be he said, she said, or she said, he said. You got to have at least two witnesses or three witnesses and notice there's a process. Man, you got to go figure this out. You thoroughly inquire, the Bible says. You listen to the witnesses. You inquire on this. You make sure it is very, uh, it, it's proven. And with this accountability, notice this, the two or three witnesses were front and center on the firing squad. They laid their hands on the convicted. Now, that puts an incredible responsibility on the witness. If you're going to claim that someone did something worthy of capital punishment, you'd better be right because you're going to be the one carrying it out. You're going to throw the switch. You're going to put your hand. You're going to pull the trigger. That's the point. You're going to throw the first stone. <laughs> and there was an, also an answerable assembly. It wasn't just the two witnesses who then would stone for capital punishment. It was the entire community that would now be involved. So it, it's not as loosey-goosey as some might try to say. No, you have to make sure it's, it's investigated. You need to have the witnesses. The witnesses then will be involved in the execution and so will the entire assembly of Israel. And remember then what Jesus said, put it into context. Jesus said, he who's without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone. Wow, that changes everything. You work in the prison system, and it's your job to throw the switch. But right before you do, they say, now listen, if you've done anything in your wrong in your life, then you need to step back and let someone else throw that switch. But if you're pure and perfect and, and, and everything's great, throw the switch. How many people could do it? Jesus said, let the one without sin. It, it was that defining moment. I'm not going to read it right now just for time's sake. John chapter 8. How many times have you heard the story of the adulterous woman that is so poignant, she's dragged out of the bed of adultery? The man is, you know, where'd he go? No one knows. But they got the woman, and the Pharisees brought her before Jesus in the temple court, direct from where she was caught. So, I mean, you can even imagine the scene. Thankfully, the Bible is not graphic with it. She's dragged and put right in front of Jesus in the temple court, and they say, we found her committing adultery. What do you say? And they thought they had him. She committed adultery. That is punishable by stoning, according to the law. What does Jesus say? All right, he who is without sin, be the first to throw a stone. What did Jesus know? <laughs> he knew what they knew. 
that none of them were sinless. And I, I, I would take it a step further, and this is just Rick kind of guessing a little bit. They were not even sinless in catching her in the act of adultery. They were culpable. They knew. Either they set her up with some guy who then they let run away, or they were watching. Bunch of peeping Toms. No offense, Tom. Sorry. That's... But I mean, they were culpable, I believe, for that very sin. They had sin involvement in this. And if you recall the story, young, oldest to youngest, the oldest kind of went, that's not me, and off they went. And the youngest had a little more bravado, but eventually realized, no, I'm not without sin. I can't stone either. And they leave. Jesus looks up at the woman. I'm telling the whole story anyway, but it's so good. It's so good. So he looks at the woman and he says, is there no one to condemn you? You know what he just said? Aren't there two witnesses here? No one's here, my Lord. I won't condemn you either. Go your way and sin no more. Perfect grace, and he kept the law. Perfectly. I, I love that about Jesus. Merciful compassion and legal protection for this woman. And so she was not stoned that day. And that's God's precise boundaries. There are boundaries for capital punishment. Last thing on this, remember that when it came to Jesus, Every single one of these capital punishment boundaries were violated. When he was executed, they did not follow the law. They violated the law to do it. Verse 8. So Moses goes on. He says, if any case is too difficult for you to decide between one kind of homicide or another, between one kind, one kind of lawsuit or another, between one kind of assault or another, being cases of dispute in your courts, then you shall arise and write multiple law books to figure it all out with loopholes. No, sorry. You shall, you shall arise and go up to the place which the Lord your God chooses. Where's that? Jerusalem. Ultimately, Jerusalem. If anyone said Shiloh, you'd be right too because that's where they went first. But where God, God says, okay, go to the Supreme Court. That's in essence what he's describing here. Go up to Jerusalem, verse 9. You shall come to the Levitical priest or the judge who's in office in those days. You shall inquire of them and they will declare to you the verdict in the case. You shall do according to the terms of the verdict which they declare to you from that place which the Lord chooses, Shiloh at first and then Jerusalem. And you shall be careful to observe according to all that they teach you. According to the terms of the law, so here's the standard. According to the terms of the law, which they teach you, and according to the verdict which they tell you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the word which they declare to you to the right or to the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not listening to the priest who stands there to serve the Lord your God, nor to the judge, that man shall die Thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. And I think, Les, if we still applied that today, there would be very little pastoral counseling. I mean, think about this. If people came to Pastor Les or came to me or, or came to Jake and said, hey, we, want, we need, need some biblical counsel on something. And they lay it out. We give the biblical counsel Sadly, a lot of times that counsel is just not adhered to because it's not what they wanted to hear. So they'll go find a second opinion somewhere else. So if we could apply this, the man who acts presumptuously by not listening to his pastor, that man shall die. 
I, I'm not actually totally opposed to the idea. Let's put it up for a vote among the shepherds. But no, no, he, he, what he's saying is, look, this is based on the law. So this is not some priest going off on his own. This is the rule of God's law, the terms of this law. Listen to it. And if you go before and the judgment is made, you follow that judgment. And by the way, verse 13, then all the people will hear and be afraid and will not act presumptuously again. So here's the point. Priests and Levites and judges were not above the law. They themselves were bound by Torah. So if a case was brought before them, what was declared by Moses here, what God is saying is, you use my law to figure out what punishment there must be, what, what, what the situation is, how you deal with it. The wisdom's here. You don't just make something up on your own as you sit in the judge's seat. Now, there is a New Testament equivalent to this, and this is a verse that I'm, I'm going to bring it up because I, I, I felt like I needed to. But it always makes me uncomfortable. I'll read it anyway. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Listen to verse 12 again. The man who acts presumptuously by not listening to the priest who stands there to serve the Lord your God, nor to the judge, that man shall die. Now, I'm not saying we're going to institute this here. But what I am saying is when you go to a pastor, set me aside, because this is not about me. When you go to a pastor, when you go to a church leader, when you go to a shepherd and you're seeking godly wisdom and counsel and they open the word to you and they show you based on the word what the answer is, do it. Don't say, well, I don't like that. I'm sorry you don't like that. It's God's word. It's not my wisdom. It's his word. And so when it comes to obedience, and this is becoming a larger issue in the church, at least in, in my experience, in, in 30 plus years of ministry for me, this is a bigger issue now than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or 30 years ago. It's getting more and more where people, they, they don't want to listen to a pastor. They don't want to obey someone just because there's the church. Why should I obey you? And I'll give you one reason. If the leader is following Jesus, obey them. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's someone worth imitating because they are already in line following Jesus themselves. Follow that. Now, if you have a pastor or a church leader who's trying to proclaim something to you or tell you something that is not biblical, don't listen to him. Don't follow him. It's very simple. But if what's being offered is the word of God, you are bound by that word to be obedient, not to the man, but to the word. Obey your leaders. And by the way, Paul says after that, Hebrews 13, 18, pray for us. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. There is an accountability there. Now, some might say, yeah, but this whole obey your leaders thing, couldn't this develop an authoritarian arrogance you know, a pridefulness in leaders. Yeah, absolutely it could if they don't keep the word. I, I was sharing today, I think with you, Les, but I um, was sharing, you, you realize this month, in fact, today is October 6th, October the 8th, 2003 was the very first Bible study for the bridge. So this is our, we are 18. We're coming of age. <laughs> We're 18 years old this week. 
And I look back over 18 years, and I, honestly, I'm amazed that we're still here. After all the dumb things that I've done, <laughs> you know, uh, after the foolish mistakes that have been made, after the, what I like to call stupid human tricks that have gone on here, as with any church, as with any assembly, any fellowship, but it is remarkable we're still here, and I attribute it to two things. I attribute it first to his faithfulness, that God is faithful and that God wants this fellowship to be here, which is why we are. If he didn't want us to be here, we would not be here. But the second thing I attribute it to is very simply this. We're trying to keep his word. And, and I can tell you for me personally, because I teach every Sunday and every Wednesday and I'm in the word pretty constantly because of that, man, Sometimes I get spiritual whiplash being pulled back into what God wants me to do rather than what I want to do. Sometimes I'm sitting here teaching. You all don't even know, but I come across something and go, wow. All right, I got to go home and make some apologies. <laughs> because the word does that. David put it this way, and apply this to you. Even I, I got to apply this to me. Psalm 119, verses 9 through 170. <laughs> but let me pull this out because he says something over and over and over and over. In verse 9, he says, keep me pure. In verse 25, revive me. In verse 28, strengthen me. Verse 41, save me. Verse 58, be gracious to me. Verse 65, deal with me. Verse 76, comfort me. Verse 116, sustain me. Verse 169, give me understanding. And then in verse 170, deliver me. And in each verse he says, according to your word. According to your word. You want to be saved? You'll be saved according to his word. You want to be revived? It is according to his word. Strengthened, his grace, his sustenance, understand all of this. It will come according to his word. You can say the word kept is justice protected. And, and listen, even in the death penalty and in all that we're reading, the Lord was leading his people and us to this very simple truth that ultimately evil can only be dealt with by the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's what the death penalty was about, to point out that there is no righteousness outside of God himself and his rule of law, and only Jesus could take that death penalty and provide for you and me to be exonerated. Which is why Paul said in Romans 3.21, I hope this is familiar to you, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Being witnessed by the law, and the prophets, they saw it ahead of time. They proclaimed it ahead of time. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction, which means absolute fairness. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. In other words, Jesus took the death penalty that I deserve. And this whole thing is pointing us in that direction. Now, verses 14 through 20, we covered on Sunday. See how fast we can move if we want to. Verses 14 through 20 are all about the king. Remember about the king, we looked at this. The king was not to be a king like that of the nations. He was not to rule or lord it over. Instead, he was called to be a noble man. And Sunday, we defined that. To be noble is literally to be known. 
And so God's standard for Israel's king was unlike any other king. It wasn't someone to rule. It wasn't someone to be the boss. It wasn't a judge. It wasn't someone to be in charge of things. The purpose of Israel's king, chosen by God, was to exemplify a relationship with the Lord before the people. Now, I got to be honest with you. I never saw that before in all these years. And having taught through this before, I didn't see that. I didn't realize, wait a minute. The king wasn't established as a ruler. He was established as an example. That the point, and the reason why David is the gold standard of the kings, the point of the king was to be a man in relationship with God who knew God and knew that he was known by God that the people could look to and say, imitate him as he imitates Christ. Follow David because he's following the Lord. That was why Israel was even given a king It was to be a man who, as we read in here, who feared the Lord, who kept his word, who walked with humility among God's people as equals, and a man who exemplified longevity and stability for the kingdom. And that's the nobility that he wants for you and for me. Nobility now, we know him and we know that he knows us for the kingdom then that we will enter. And by by the way, uh, this law is descriptive of the one who is coming to rule. The, the, nobleman, the, the noble king described here, that's Jesus. I mean, it describes Jesus beautifully. As Paul said in 1 Timothy 6.13, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. And wait a minute. Do you know what that was? Paul says Jesus testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. What good confession? Pilate said, are you a king? And Jesus said, you said it. Jesus confessed his rule, his authority, his kingship. He said, you wouldn't even have any authority over you if it wasn't given you from heaven. Before Pilate, that was the good confession. Jesus as the king, his kingdom, his rule. And Paul says, so keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords. And even this description of the king in chapter 17 speaks of Jesus in a beautiful way. Chapter 18, God now moves on from judges and kings. He now goes on to priests and their role in the pursuit of justice chapter 18, verse 1, the Levitical priests, the whole tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. Remember, they, they weren't given a land inheritance. They had cities within the other tribes, so they're spread out to minister to and serve the people, but they didn't get any land inheritance. So they shall eat the Lord's offerings by fire and his portion. That's given to the priests. They shall have no inheritance among their countrymen. You may recall this. The Lord is their inheritance. I love that. Just as he promised them. Verse 3, Now this shall be the priest's due from the people. From those who offer a sacrifice, either an ox or a sheep, of which they shall give to the priest the shoulder. Don't give them the cold shoulder. <laughs> give them the shoulder from the ox or the sheep. And the, the, the two cheeks. Don't get cheeky. Give him the two cheeks and the stomach. So don't give him something that he can't stomach. I'm sorry. Should have apologized even ahead of time. By the way, <laughs> note this. The two cheeks here is not speaking of the rump roast. 
just want to be clear, the two cheeks is the jaw. And that's, that's the reference there. Verse 4, you shall give him the first fruits of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and the first shearing of your sheep, which because it's first, it's best. That's the point. Your offering should cost you. Your sacrifice should really be a sacrifice. Give the best, the first fruits. But it went to the priest. And that was God's established way of providing for his priests. That that's where this where this went, verse 5, for the Lord your God has chosen him, this is the priest and his sons from all your tribes, and I like this, you might want to underline it, to stand and serve in the name of the Lord forever. Note that, royal priesthood. That's what a priest does. That's what we're called to do, to stand and serve in the name of the Lord forever. To stand and serve, that means we're at the ready. We're on our feet. We're ready to help. We're ready to serve in the name of the Lord, to stand and serve, not to sit and lord it over people. For who is greater, Jesus said, Luke twenty two twenty seven, 27, the one who reclines or the one who serves? Well, is it not the one who reclines, but I am among you as one who serves. So we are called to stand and serve in the name of the Lord. I had this interesting, how are we doing on time? Oh, we're fine. I had an interesting experience um, in Ghana, one of many. Uh, I, I got back to the hotel. We were up in Bolga, up in the north. And that was, it was the afternoon. If you're here Sunday, I talked about going and, and teaching the kids. And when I came back and got to the room, um, Christopher said, Dad, there's someone who wants to talk to you. And he said, we ran into him at the pool today. And then he ran in, into us coming back to the room again tonight. And he said, he found out you're a pastor and he wants to talk to you. I was like, okay. Now, this has been a long, very full couple of days. And I'm like, all right. So, uh, knocked at the, he came to the hotel room that night, knocked at the door, opened it up, came and sat down at the table with me, this young Ghanaian guy. And um, he said, you know, I'm, I'm a pastor. He said, actually, I'm serving with a pastor here in Bolga, but I, I'm feeling called to go plant a church. And I'm like, oh, bro. <laughs> How long do you have? Um, but he began to describe his situation, describe the pastor he was serving, and describe what I shared with you on Sunday, prosperity gospel. But that's the deal. And he described a pastor that very much lorded it over the people and had all the bling and had all the cars in Bolga, where nobody has cars, but the, the pastor did. And, um, and, and I'm listening to this, and so he's but he wasn't talking about it judgmentally. He was talking about it kind of from the perspective of this is what he has, and I'd like to go do the same thing. So I don't know if this sunk in, pray that it did, but I, I looked at him. I spent the next hour schooling him a little bit on what it means to be a pastor. And I said, if you're a pastor, you're a shepherd. If you're a shepherd, you're a servant. And I told him, I said, you know what? If God's calling you to plant a church, do it. But do it in humility and do it to serve people and go expecting nothing you know, it was a really interesting conversation. And he was asking a lot of questions, but I'm like, I'm sitting here in Ghana talking to, he had to be in his mid-20s and wanted to know how to plan a church. And I was so convicted because, again, I saw so much of this, this just seeking your own attitude. And it is not the attitude of the royal priesthood. That's all of us, my friends. We're called to serve each other. We're called to love each other. We're called to stand up and give what we've got and, and not be looking for what we can get. God's got that covered. God's going to give you everything that you need. Maybe not everything that you want, but everything that you need. 
He's going to provide. He will bless you. Let that be his concern. Let your concern to be to stand and serve. And note that it's also in the name of the Lord. So you're not serving in your own name. I don't serve in my name. This isn't about in the name of Rick. I've mentioned to you guys a lot recently this Mars Hill, Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, and I'm not saying listen to it, but I've listened to the whole thing. I know Jake has, and it's very convicting because it really makes you think about what are we doing here? What's this church about? What's my attitude? We're not, I'm, we're not here to make a name for ourselves. We have a name. The name is Jesus. And this is the name that we are to proclaim. Our service, think about it this way. Our service reflects on his reputation. Anything I do in the name of Jesus, that reflects on God. So if I'm doing something in the name of Jesus, and I'm like one of those wealthy pastors in impoverished areas of, of Ghana, and I'm doing that in the name of Jesus, how does that reflect on God? If I'm out there being territorial in Anacortes or Oak Harbor saying, if you go to any other church but the bridge, you're lost. <laughs> if I'm saying, no, you need to be here. And if you leave here, we don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. And if, if I had that kind of attitude, I'm doing that in the name of Jesus. That's his reputation on the line, not mine. So we stand and we serve in the name of the Lord. And by the way, and I know I'm sitting on this one verse for a bit, but man, stand and serve in the name of the Lord. You want to know the only time that Jesus stands anymore? He came and he stood and he served. But, but now the Bible tells us every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus took a seat because the work was done. Do you know when Jesus stands now? The only time we see in Scripture is when he is cheering someone on to heaven. As with Stephen, Acts chapter 7, verse 56, as they're getting ready to stone him, and Stephen says, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Why was Jesus standing? It's like Jesus is going, Come on, Stephen, you're almost here. Come on, bro, I'm with you. I'm cheering you on. I love that picture. But for us as a royal priesthood, stand and serve in the name of the Lord. Verse 6, now if a Levite comes from any of your towns throughout Israel where he resides and comes whenever he desires to the place which the Lord chooses, again Jerusalem, then he shall serve in the name of the Lord his God, like all his fellow Levites who stand there before the Lord. And they shall eat equal portions, so there's complete justice, fairness, even among the Levites. It's not one above the other, uh, except from the sale of their fathers. So if there's something in their own personal family and their father sells an estate or sells a house or sells some property in the city, that can be passed on and that Levite doesn't have to then dole that out and share that with everybody else. So it's, just, it's God's equity among the leaders. All that to say, God established with the priests and the judges here, he established mediators, he established intercessors, go-betweens, so that the people of Israel had someone to go to to point them to the Lord. And that's the way it was until Jesus came. And now we have one mediator, one go-between, one intercessor. There is one God, 1 Timothy 2.5, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Know what that means? I am not your mediator. It means less is not your mediator. Now less will intercede for you. 
I will intercede. I will pray for you. I'll pray with you. I'm not your mediator. Jesus is your mediator. I am not the go-between. Jesus is. You don't need me. You need Jesus. And that goes for any of us. We are all on equal footing. We, we love each other. We need each other in that we're a fellowship. But Jesus is the mediator. Jesus is the go-between. He's the one who, 1 Timothy uh, 2, verse 6, gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony at the proper time. Well, verse 9, and we're almost done here. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and by the way, I tell you we're almost done, not because I feel like we're going long, but because I know some of you will be so disappointed when we stop. When you enter the Lord, which, the land which the Lord your God gives you, you shall not learn to imitate the detestable things of those nations, and here they are. There shall not be found among you anyone who makes his son or his daughter pass through the fire. That was child-burning sacrifice. I told you about on the arms of Molech, they would heat those arms up until they were white hot, and they would take the infant son or daughter, and they would put them on the white hot arms of this idol until they, and they would beat drums loudly because of the shrieking of the child. It was horrific. And then the child ultimately would fall off the arms and into the open belly, which was a furnace. That's how they sacrificed, burning children. Do we do that in America? Burn children? Yeah. Much of abortion is through saline. And, and it, it is, well, you know what we're talking about. There shall not be among you anyone found doing that. Or one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, one who casts a spell. Thank you, Harry Potter. A medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable. Notice it's not just the things that are detestable, it's whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord, and because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out, that is the Canaanites and the Hittites and the detestableites. <laughs> God will drive them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. Verse 14, for these nations which you shall dispossess, listen to those who practice witchcraft and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do so. Listen, the fourth largest religion in America is Wicca, witchcraft. It's number four on the list. 1.5 million people, and that number is doubling every 30 months. Oh, wait a minute. That was statistics from 2010. I don't even know what it is right now. I didn't want to take the time to look. But it is rampant, and it is accepted, and it is you know, it's okay, and it's karma, and it's positive energy, and it's the universe, and it's all this stuff. And I'm not the one who's saying the word, folks. God said it is detestable. It makes them sick. We see this in our society, our nation, and you know what's happening? Again, back to where we began, as, as, as these pagan religions is what they are, and this false belief system and witchcraft and divination and all of it, as this stuff rises, lawlessness is increasing. It's going hand in hand. Love is growing cold because pagan religion is not love. It's work. God calls these things detestable. The word is to'abat. 
in Hebrew, and it's disgusting, loathsome, an abomination. In other words, God hates these practices. Happy Halloween. But, <laughs> and here it is, October. All Hallows' Eve is coming, which was originally the church kind of tried to conscript that, take it and commandeer it and make it a time of recognizing the saints instead of what it was, which do your research, it's pretty bad. But what God is describing, what Moses is preaching here is not child's play, it is not dress up, it is today's neo-paganism. And it is in our country and it's rampant and it's returning to the ancient banal paganism of the land of Canaan. Let me read one more thing to you. This is Isaiah chapter 8, verse 19, where the prophet writes, when they say to you, consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they don't speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished, and it will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. And that's the paganism we're seeing. That's the atheism, the agnosticism that we see in this culture. Because as paganism grows, people curse and turn against the one true God. And he says, then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. The warning has been there for thousands of years. And this country is going that direction. Why does God hate these things so much? Witchcraft and divination, all these, the, the people, yeah, just, you know, horoscopes and all that, it's just playing around. Why does God hate it? Think about that. Why is it detestable to him? Because these practices detour people from the only way to be saved. It, it directs people away from salvation in Jesus to God the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But if you're going through Wicca, you are now being led down a wrong path. If you're going along the path of Islam. Years ago, I said, look, I don't hate Muslims, but I hate Islam. How can you say that? Because Islam is condemning people. It's detouring them from the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ, who is the only way. And all of these other practices and no big deal faiths and, and belief systems in our country that people just don't want to deal with. Gang, it is detouring people from Jesus Christ, who is the only hope of salvation. And we should find these things detestable even as God does. You got a choice. Pagan sorcery or prophetic certainty. See, the prophecies of Scripture are proven time and time again. There's a track record here of God's Word. Your Word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path, right? David wrote Psalm 119, 105. Or Peter's Word. So we have the prophetic Word more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. And so at this point in the sermon, what Moses does is he turns around and he gives a litmus test for true prophecy against the diviners and the sorcerers and the witchcraft and all the false stuff. He says, okay, so how do you know what's true and legitimate? How do you know if a prophet is truly a prophet from God? And he gives a litmus test for that. And he also lays out one of the most profound prophecies in all of Torah. 
And it's so profound, we're going to save it for Sunday because I want to really look at it and we'll come back to it then. Let me leave you with this thought. Against all the stuff that we've looked at, the negatives and the confusion and false belief and paganisms and paganism and lawlessness, Moses lays out the administration of justice. And he does it saying, you have judges, there will be judges. He says there will be priests, there will be kings, there will be prophets. Now, according to Torah law, a priest could also be a prophet, but he couldn't be a king. And a king could also be a prophet like David, but he couldn't be a part of the priesthood. A prophet himself could be a king or could be a priest, but he couldn't be all three simultaneously. Which is why in verse 16, in chapter 16, verse 20, Moses says, justice and only justice you shall pursue. But we know this, Jesus and only Jesus is prophet and priest and king and judge. Only the perfect God in Jesus Christ could handle all of these offices and administer justice perfectly. And Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you, Lord, that it does continue to point us to Jesus, the great prophet, to Jesus, the mighty king, king of kings, to Jesus, our great high priest, the great high priest of our confession. And to Jesus, to whom all judgment has been given. O oh Lord Jesus, we praise, we worship you. And again, we give homage to the Son tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. <laughs>